You're listening to Working, the show about what people do all day. I'm your host, Jordan Weissman. On this week's episode, I talk with Helena Newman, who is the co-head of Impressionist and Modern Art at Sotheby's, the 274-year-old auction house. A simple way to think about her job is that she's the art auctioneer who recently sold a $157 million masterpiece by Modigliani. I spoke with Helena the day after that sale about how she pulls that kind of auction together, and I just want to take a moment to set the scene for you. The Sotheby's offices are a bit like a library of art with these shelves of paintings filed one after another in storage and desks kind of tucked around them. I sat down with Helena in a room off to the side that had these religious portraits by old masters just kind of strewn all over the place. And I swear to God, I was terrified that I was going to kick over a million dollar Madonna and child. I actually don't know that it was a million dollars, but I just kind of had it rolling in my head that I might cause seven figures of damage if I wasn't careful or spilled my water. But anyway, it was a lovely room and it had these huge light-filled windows that unfortunately also let in the occasional siren from the hospital next door. So I apologize if you hear a little bit of street noise during this interview. Other than that, I hope you enjoy. What's your name and what do you do? I'm Helena Newman, and I work at Sotheby's, um, the international auction house. I'm chairman of Sotheby's in Europe. I'm auctioneer, and I co-head the Impressionist and Modern Art Department worldwide. That's a very capacious job description. Yes. Uh, But what does that even begin to entail? If you had to sum it up in two sentences... Well, can't I, be summed up in I two sentences. I can sum it up in two words, sourcing, selling. Okay, let's start with sourcing. What's sourcing? So sourcing is hunting the world over for great works of art that we can bring to market. And that's a huge part of my job, actually, is looking for uh, impressionist and modern art in private collections, mainly um, discussing with collectors um, the value um, the market opportunities, negotiating um, the bringing of those works to market, either at auction or for private sale. And selling sounds and, fairly straightforward? Yeah, and the selling, well, it's certainly not straightforward when you're dealing with the kind of price levels that we are working in, but it's marketing the paintings we've sourced to our global audience, um, Asia, U.S., Europe, and beyond, and uh, advising buyers, consulting with buyers, bringing the works around the world in the exhibition tours, and everything culminating with the auction, as we had here last night at Sotheby's. And last night you sold, I believe, the most expensive painting that Sotheby's has ever auctioned. That's right. It was Modigliani's um, Nous Couchés from 1917, the big monumental splendid reclining nude by Amadeo Modigliani. It made a world, um, uh, made a record price for any work of art sold at Sotheby's at auction, $157.2 million. And how are you all feeling about that right now? Well, I mean, it was, for me personally, it was a really historic moment. I mean, it was a real highlight of my career as an auctioneer and um, in terms of my, you know, role in the Impressionist and Modern Art field. It was, you know, it's a very, very extraordinary price. So we're going to come back to the specifics of that auction in a bit, but 
I want to start by asking how you got to Sotheby's. How long have you even been here? Oh, well, I've been here. It's my 30th year now. 30? So, yes, yes. I, but Sotheby's is the only place I've ever worked, actually. I went straight from university to Sotheby's as a trainee, and I worked my way up in uh, different uh, areas of expertise, but very quickly homing in on my favorite, which is impressionist and modern art. So everything from, say, Claude Monet through to Picasso of the 1960s. So it's about 100 years of Western art that I'm covering. And were you an art student in school? Or? Uh, I actually studied uh, French and German literature and language at Oxford. So um, I was, in a way, I was doing a kind of parallel um, expertise in a way, because when I came to take on art history, I'd already been doing a lot of work on analyzing um, literature and poetry from a similar period as the one I'm now covering in the art world. And so what made you decide to join Sotheby's in the first place? Well, just a you know passion for art and interest and desire to get more into it and um, you know, the opportunity came up to to apply to Sotheby's and I was really excited about the kind of mix of commercial and art, that kind of unique, which is still what actually gets me out of bed in the morning every day. It's that kind of buzz around access to the art and the commercial side, which is just endlessly um, enthralling. That's interesting to me because some people, I think, really like to divide off the commercial from the art itself. And that's what actually gets you, that's sure. what gets you revved up. Sure, yeah. I mean, I think if you if you don't want the whole commercial side, then definitely this wouldn't be the place to be. But if you like the kind of buzz of deal-making and the energy around the selling and the conversations with the collectors and, um, you know, if you sort of thrive on being right at the very core of the international art market, which is what Sotheby's is. It's, it's actually the sort of it's leading and driving the, the art market in terms of visibility and, and um, uh, actually setting the tone. It's very exciting. So how do you find the art? And, well, how do I find it? Well, after many, many years, I have a pretty good idea of where a lot of it is, as do my colleagues from all over the world. We're, we're a big... Uh, network at Sotheby's with offices in you know 80 or 90 locations worldwide um, we so each of my colleagues in turn has relationships with collectors and when an opportunity comes up I jump on the plane and go there to see it so it's almost like an intelligence service type thing in a way well uh, we we thrive off what we know both in terms of our expertise around the art and our knowledge of the where it is and that is that is um, how we build our relationships and how we're able, in the end, to marry up sellers and buyers. So it seems like that's half the trick in the art world is actually knowing who owns the paintings and how to, and where to find them. I mean, I think that uh, um, the a lot of the great works are in private collections, and many of those collectors we know at Sotheby's because we've been servicing them for years helping them build their collections. They, they, they've been coming to the auctions. Um, we know them. Uh, we've been advising, valuing. And so, so that's how we have that access. And is it typically they're coming to you saying, I think 
you know, I've had this Modigliani or this Picasso sitting in my living room for 15 years now, and I think it's time to unload it? Or are you going to them and saying, I think you have an opportunity here? Well, look, we have a mixture of both. There's the what we call the reactive, you know, from time to time, there will be that um, exciting mystery call that, you know, you haven't had before and something new comes up on the horizon you don't know. But invariably, it's more a dialogue that mm. we know where the works are, and then we might actually start the conversation and say right now there's this hunger for great masterpieces there's actually you know a great depth of global buyers looking for good things so maybe now is a good time to discuss it and that's how the conversation might initiate and so take me through that process do you just call someone up one day and say do you just send them a little, how how does that work well i might call them up or we might go and visit them and we might discuss it better one-to-one, actually, for these high-value works. I spend a lot of my time traveling. I mean, mm. I'm usually on a plane. Well, I'm, I'm based in London. I'm here in New York, obviously, for the auctions this week. But um, when I'm back in London, I'm usually spending one or two days a week um, traveling around, um, usually on the continent in Europe, going to Switzerland and France and Germany and Italy and in discussions with collectors about opportunities in the market. Um, so it starts, I take it with sort of an informal conversation. Does then that turn into you showing up with a bunch of other specialists and a slide deck presentation or how, how do you then kind of push that process forward? Well, absolutely. But I think that each one is different on a case by case basis. And, you know, sometimes there'll be a formal contest to win a collection. You see that quite a lot in America, actually, where very often, um, estates are managed by lawyers, and executors, and so they will have a very sort of formal fiduciary process to choose who is going to handle the sale. And then there will indeed be a, a you know a presentation with um, materials and marketing and uh, data and and you know the whole the whole um, the full works as you might call it, like a sort of um, not quite a talent contest, but you know like a sort of you know pitching pitching to win a major deal. And, you know, that's sort of one extreme. And then I think, you know, particularly in Europe, it tends to be a bit more informal. So, you know, it's more about planting the seed of an idea and then developing that. And um, uh, yes, it's generally more informal. It doesn't mean it's not as um, significant a decision, but the process is probably achieved in a less structured way. When you're talking to someone about whether or not it's time to sell their art, what do they usually want to know? What are you trying to communicate to them? Well, look, people, look, first of all, some people may already have made the decision to sell because yeah. they're the, what we call the three Ds death, debt, and divorce, which are very often the sort of core triggers for uh, a decision to sell. But in the the fourth D, the so-called discretionary, which is, you know, I don't need to, but I would if it's a good idea. I think that's the one you're thinking about. It's more that people are considering, you know, is this a good time? Is the context right? Is the market good? Could I get a good price? You know, will it be a decision that I will live happily with? And have I got a reason to use that money to buy something else I prefer, you know, or, or you know, invest in some project? So, you know, each person's looking at a different set of criteria when they're making their decision and we work through that together that's part of the conversation and are i I assume you have a big staff you're kind of commanding over during this whole process oh well 
hardly commanding, but no, <laughs> I, I, we do have a great, great team at Summit. It's really great, actually. And um, it's very, you know, it's um, international, it's diverse in its reach, um, deep in its expertise. And, you know, we, we love working together. And actually that sort of trust we have as a team um, is key to getting it done because, you know, we're dealing with a very fast-moving competitive um, world, you know, high stakes, you know, the prices are very high right now. And so that ability to move in a sort of nimble, seamless way across continents, across time zones uh, is crucial to our success. So the people you're working for you, are they mostly focused on market analysis are they sort of financial analysts or are they art experts who, who yeah, who's well, on your team no no main, mainly yeah. art experts specialists uh valuers uh people with relationships with buyers um so you know this similar to what i'm doing i mean i don't certainly don't do it alone i have a team we work in a team we mm-hmm. make the take because actually a lot of it is to do with judgment calls on value and that's not something you can look up in a book or research in a database alone. It's actually a judgment calls on how how a picture will appeal in the market. Who's going to like it? How much they'll like it? Who will buy it? And how much will they pay? And those kind of judgments we make together and we discuss it and everybody has their instincts and their kind of their um, own bank of information and knowledge that they've built up. And so it's very, it's very helpful actually to share that dialogue and decision-making as we make major calls on pricing as we build an auction. So how do you make that judgment? Well, (laughs) we make that judgment based on um, a combination of the visual, mm-hmm. the art itself, how it is, how it appeals, the quality, the, 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 the strength of the work, the success of the work as a work of art. Do you look at it and does it have that wow factor that you just can't take your eyes from? You know, like the Modigliani had, you know, that amazing, you know, socket to you in the eyes masterpiece. And all the time we're also bringing into our judgment our bank of knowledge of other works because it's in a way it is a hierarchical judgment it's how how does this compare how 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 do you rank it in a way how you know which do you prefer because that also is how our collectors will look at the works you know do they love it or whether they rather wait for something else so there's there's a there's a lot of that kind of discussion of how you how you cite something in terms of quality how successful is the work of art that judgment and then there's the pricing and the precedent and our knowledge of the market, who's out there and who's looking for what. So I'm trying to picture this. Is there so is there is there a meeting at some point where you're sitting around with a bunch of spreadsheets and what similar works have gone through before and your other colleagues here and just where you kind of sit and hash it out? Or yeah. is it and that's how it actually Yeah, that, they're they're what we call like a pricing meeting and there's a or valuation meeting or, or whatever we like to call it. But absolutely we you know, people bring their, they bring what, you know, so say we're all out on the road for a week and everyone's, some, one person's been in Milan and someone else had to fly to New York overnight and then someone went to Geneva and I was in Paris and then we regroup and everybody brings what they've seen and then we we discuss it. And, you know, sometimes we have the ability to be looking firsthand at the works because they've already arrived in the building, but sometimes we're working from images 
good images or as good as we can get. And um, and then we did, and then that, that's when we have that really in depth. Very often, more than one conversation, really, on the research, on the understanding the work of art, and then trying to come to the commercial judgment on how it should be priced. At, at what point in this process are you actually coming to that judgment? Is it once the client has said, okay, I'm definitely going to sell? Is it when you're still trying to convince them? Is it sort of all the... Well, I mean, it's, it starts at the beginning of the process, Very right from good. the beginning. And, um, but obviously, you know, it's also an evolving market. I mean, there is no static point. I mean, like we have a whole lot of new points now after the sale last night. We have new data, if you like to call it that way. So it's a constantly evolving um, a situation in terms of each work and its market appeal and, and the value. So each time there's a major auction, You've got a. I mean, if if you look at what's happened now in New York over the last week, and there's still the rest of this week to come. At the end of it, maybe there'll be one and a half billion dollars of art would have been traded, and that will give us a whole new set of benchmarks against which we can um, make new judgments. And so, are you going to be spending the next week sort of regrouping and saying, okay? What does this make us think about the market and what do we do next? Absolutely. Absolutely. So then after the sale, there's the kind of debrief and what does it mean? And and so, you know, what does it mean for Picasso? What does it mean for Chagall? What does it mean for Monet? And and then in our new conversations, there a lot a lot of people will be, you know, calling up wanting to discuss things. How did it go? What does it, you know, how, how does that what does that say for the market? And so we'll be having those discussions ourselves and then we'll be communicating it with the wider collectors we're working with and we'll be building our next sale based on that information, which, believe it or not, is only five weeks away. So right on to the next. How long does it take you to plan out an individual auction? Well, we have four major auctions a year, two in New York and two in London for Impressionist Modern Contemporary Art, which are sort of main flagship fine art sales, all masters too. And um, we prepare, it takes about three months each sale to prepare. So we're running on a sort of three-month period of sourcing, getting the, gathering the material, preparing for the sale, marketing, sending the works on global tour, and then setting up the exhibition in the sale location which is a sort of seven to 10 day view, and then culminating in the auction itself. So it's running in about four, three month cycles throughout the year, roughly. What's the best way to learn a language? Immersion, living where the language is spoken and using it every day in everyday situations. But if that's not on the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. I've used apps in the past to learn new languages, but when I came across Babbel, I wondered if it could help me refresh my knowledge of a language I once spoke well, but was now a little bit or quite a lot rusty. I have to say, I was impressed. The advanced lessons were really useful, tips and idioms that can help with in-depth conversations on topics that I can actually imagine chatting about. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel is designed by real people for real conversations, and the tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. 
What's more, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for working listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for working listeners, at babbel.com slash working. Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash working, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash working. Rules and restrictions may apply. So we talked about finding the art, sourcing it, and we've talked a little bit about selling, but how do you go about marketing a piece once you know it's going to be sold? Well, look, if you take the Modigliani, that um, was, you know, an exciting painting to work on. We actually decided to unveil that painting in Hong Kong um, because of the growth that we've seen in Asia and for Western art, which has been a real huge contributory factor to our market over the last four or five years. And we took the painting to Asia. We did a worldwide press announcement, but launched in Asia with a with a um, live streaming of the actual press call and the unveiling of the painting. And um, it was hugely successful in terms of impact. Um, and that was followed by the exhibition in Hong Kong at our premises at Sotheby's in Hong Kong. And then the painting came straight to New York, where we've had a two and a half week view on the amazing, splendid 10th floor gallery space that we have here on York Avenue. Um, I mean, on one day alone, we had 2,200 people come through the building. I mean, it's been a very, very busy schedule. And um, very often in these sales, we'll have one like major masterpiece, which will be the magnet to draw in our collectors. But in fact, you know, many of them are not coming to spend $150 million. They're coming to look at the whole display that's here. And we have, you know, several hundreds of works here um, that also benefit from the marketing around the top lots and that we're selling over the course of two weeks here. So uh, this last auction, you had 46 items. Yes, 43 maybe in the end, yes. So how much of your personal attention is on the kind of marquee painting, like the Medigliani, and how much of your personal attention is devoted to the other 45? Oh, no, no, I'm on all, I'm with my cut, with my senior team, we're on all all 43 lots, absolutely, yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not that long a sale, so, and that's 43 important lots with a total value of $316 million, and um, we absolutely have the bandwidth as a global team to be looking at all of those. Why do you publish the prices or the estimated prices? Well, the estimate price is a guideline to our buyers for the kind of price level they need to be thinking at to to bid on a lot. And it also um, reflects conversations we've had with the seller because the sellers will set a minimum reserve price below which they will not part with the work and that minimum price cannot exceed the low estimate. So our guideline estimate will have a range from a low to a high, say 10 to 15 or 15 to 20 or 20 to 30. And that guideline will also be pegged to the owner's minimum expectation, which cannot be higher than the low end. So that that is actually the the the... He gives some indication to a buyer of the price they need to pay to win the work. Of course, it doesn't indicate at the top end because with competition, 
prices can be exceeded, and there's no top end at auction, but it does give some indication for the lower end, which can be set at the low estimate or below. And at what point do you start to get a sense of what the painting might actually sell for during this process? Do you get a is it sort of midway or do you do you know or Yes, but I think that we there's there's we know more and more and we know less and less. It's very interesting. So we have great we have a very good way of you know, measuring the growth of interest as it builds before a sale. But the thing about auction is you never know. And that is the most incredible thing about the auction mechanism is that anything can happen in the serum. You know, somebody can miss the call because they get out of range and they can't pick up the mobile, or you can have a surprise and a buyer that you had no idea was going to bid can register half an hour before the sale and then they're in the room. So actually, it's that is part of what brings the energy and the anticipation and the excitement to the auction, which is why so many people turn up for these big sales, because it, it is the market in its making at that moment. You have an auction in the evening. How do you start your day? Okay, well, in New York, I'm up early, because I'm from London. So yesterday, I went for a walk in Central Park, first thing. So that's always great. I love the park. That helps sort of clear my mind and help you know me focus for the day and then at nine o'clock we all meet as a team to go through the sale and that's what we call our big um, interest meeting and there's a large large team of us people have come in flown in from all over the world from Beijing from Moscow from London from Paris from Brussels from Chicago and Hong Kong and so we're all together and everybody's bringing their information there what they think they're going to do how their clients might bids and that helps uh, me together with my team build a picture of how we think it's going to go and helps us also update our sellers on how things are looking. Some of them may want to um, actually, you know, give us a bit of flexibility with their minimum price, with their reserve price, because they may say, well, look, actually, if the interest is a bit thin, I may actually lower my reserve. Um, it, that informs our discussions throughout the day and we're getting constant updates so after that one hour meeting I go back onto the exhibition floor which has still got two hours two to three hours more of viewing which is the sort of last hours before we close to set up for the sale and um, you know that there, there are people who come back on the last day some people arrive for the for the first time on that day they've come in from out of town so that's also still quite important the last few hours of viewing um so there's that's with it's got that sort of energy as people are going around and uh, asking questions asking for condition reports asking for advice on the bidding how far do we think something will go what will it take to win it so that's very interesting to gauge the, the mood. Mm -hmm. So I'm up, up on the 10th floor. And then, um, and then I usually like to take a couple of hours break, go back to the hotel um, and rest, eat something, um, you know, think about it, psych myself up, um, you know, prepare. Just, just, you know, take that time out because it's going to be a long day and I've already been up early anyway. So I did that. Yesterday I did that. And then um, by 3 o'clock it was prep time. So that whole period, 3 till 7, is full on. Hair, makeup, back to the office, another meeting to go through the wholesale. That took a good hour. And then straight to 
change and get set up for the sale. So it was actually really quite a fast turnaround yesterday. It was, you know, four hours to prepare the end, end of it. And what do you need to be prepared for specifically for when you're up there? What is it that you're, you want to make sure you have down pat when you walk up to the podium? Well, I think that it is, I think there's the technical side, which is the book. The auctioneer has a book, which is basically a list of the 43 lots we're selling with the minimum price, the bids that have come in, who may be on the telephone, and where there may be interest in the room. So that's the sort of technical aspect. You've got to have an updated book. You've got to know where you're going to start, which increment, which bid you're going to start, where you want to end, what you do in different eventualities. So that's the sort of um, uh, number preparation, the actual nuts and bolts of running the auction correctly. And there are people bidding during the auction from all over the world, right? I mean, when you say on the telephone, you're talking about clients who are actually in Asia or in Europe and who aren't presently there, but they are. And do you know every single person who's on the phone at that moment? Well, I know my colleagues who are bidding on the phone. Okay. And I know quite a few of the clients, and sometimes they'll have a client I don't know, but I, I have a pretty good sense of who they're bidding for. And what about the people in the room itself? Or um, how, to what extent do you know exactly who's there at that point? Yeah, too? no, I, I know the room pretty well. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I, because I've been, been in the business 30 years, so I know a lot of the people in the room. So yeah, it's just, is, you, you just recognize the faces yes, or yes, is it, they yes. kind of, there's a briefing beforehand where they say, Mr. Jones is in aisle two. Oh and, yes, I have my briefing, but I do recognize a lot of the faces, but we have a seating plan. So I do actually know if I had a completely photographic memory, I would have it all off, off, you know, off pat, but I do see the seating chart and I know who's sitting where, but a lot of the clients are very familiar to me anyway. So it's not like looking out into a sea of unknown people. On the contrary, it's people I've, many of whom I've worked with actually are sitting out there in the room and now become private advisors and dealers and collectors in their own right. And is, is part of your role to sort of have a hunch about who might be bidding at any given yes. moment? Yes, yes. I mean, I think the skill in, in, in auctioning is, is actually, you know, exactly having that hunch, having, having, knowing when to push, knowing when to move on, knowing when that's it, and you bring the hammer down, the pace, and where to look to, how to get that extra bid. I mean, we talked about the technical side of the preparation, but there's the whole, um, you know, there's obviously the preparation in terms of voice and, um, you know, physical, just to be warmed up like any performance, warmed up and ready with the energy, but relaxed at the same time. And, um, yeah, and then there's the mental. It's actually the, 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 the complete, utter focus on the delivery of the highest possible price for each lot. So how do you deliver that when you're up there? What is it that you are doing when you are taking the bids that to sort of coax that from the audience or from the from the customers? Well, I mean, it's, look, I think each auctioneer is true to their own style. So first of all, you've got to be completely authentic in the way you do it. I think you can't look, you know, you've got to be just um, yourself, but at the same time, a kind of be able to, um, I mean, some people say it's like conducting an orchestra that you're kind of, you're, you've got to bring people in at the right time and you've got to, um, 
you know, wait just that extra second to get a bid that might otherwise not happen, but then be ready to swiftly move on if it's if the bid's dying down and and you know use your combination of persuasive authority and charm to get every bid you can. I've read that sometimes auctioneers will actually start the bidding below even that reserve price, the the very low end. Yes. Is there, how does that fit into the art? What is that uh, of auctioneering? What does that do? Okay. Well, the auctioneer typically starts below to get the bidding going in the room. It's to kind of build a momentum. It's to get, if you just start at the price and call the price and nothing happens, and then that's it. So you've got to, in a way, start at a level where you can draw people in, get a bid, get somebody to compete, and create that sense of momentum and energy in the room to, to first of all, to get your first bid, and then once you've locked in your first bid, to get that competition rolling. And that's part of the technique of running the sale. And you've got to judge where you start, not too low, not too high, how fast, um, uh, how high to go up. You know, all, all that kind of level is in the auctioneer's discretion. So you're hooking people at that point. Well, you're, you're fishing. <laughs> you're, you're trying to get your first bid, and the, the audience knows that at that point, when you're, when you're below, you know, when you start low, it maybe hasn't quite started yet. But that's kind of the, that is the house style of the auction. You know, you, you get it going, you start a bit lower, and you, you see where people come in. It's just the kind of whole psychology of, of drawing in your first bid. Is there sort of a rule of thumb that says after a certain amount of time, it's received to bring down the hammer? How do you, how do you, it seems like that's a really important choice. To yes. Make. So but, how do you make yeah, that decision? But, the, but that isn't, you see, there isn't a rule of thumb. You've got to use your judgment, instinct, knowledge of the market, knowledge of the bidders, and sense of timing to, to make all those decisions in a split second. And, you know, I've been taking auctions for 20 years, so you're also um, drawing on experience. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. So you've been doing auctions for 20 years of your career, you said. Yes. So I've been an auctioneer for about 20 years, but I've only relatively recently started taking the evening auctions, which are our big flagship sales in mm. London and New York for Impressionists and Modern Art. And I think my first evening auction of Impressionists and Modern Art was in London in June 2016. And how does that change the nature of your job? Uh, well, I think it's a total different um i mean it's not totally different but the the gap between the 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 evening sale is a is a it's a kind of different environment in which to auction it's 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 very high profile it's um watched by the art market to set a kind of barometer for the health of the market and um it's high value so there's a lot more at stake and um i think it requires a, a different kind of style as an auctioneer as well, um, in the sense that there's more drama, there's more anticipation, there's more inevitable tension in the room because of the prices involved. And so um, it, it is, uh, well, it's, it's very exciting. It's something I love doing. And, and um, 
I find I need to bring to it a sort of level of energy that is um, um, appropriate for the for the for the sums that are being traded. Have you actually had to change your presentation style at all? Well, I think because they because the stakes are higher, it it requires that much more drama. You know, it's a larger room. There are more people. There are more phones. There's more people watching online, thousands of people, I think, watching online. So I think it, 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 I've, my style has evolved more. I haven't made, I haven't made a, a major change in style. It's more being a kind of um, ref, refining and improving my own style to m- match the level of the occasion. Do you ever find yourself attached to a particular painting? Very much so. Very, very much so. I mean, look... I have my own personal taste and um, passions. Unfortunately, you know, I have rather expensive tastes. It's not like I can afford to buy these and live with them at home. But, 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 but I enjoy immensely living with the art. And I have the privilege in my office in London, which is also doubles up as our, one of our private viewing rooms, to hang works of art as they come through our... our um, sale rooms as we're preparing for the sales so you know earlier on this year I had the wonderful 1937 Picasso of Marie-Thérèse hanging in my office which was incredible um I mean not for very long but just those few days it was rather amazing to to be living up close with this great painting and and just enjoying the kind of sheer power of Picasso's uh you know, handling. It was a great experience. I love that. And then, you know, there comes the auction and it moves on and the painting sold. And then very often I get to see it in its next collection and the one after that and the one after that, because you often, these pictures are resurfacing in different places around the world. And so it's not like I lose touch with them. They, they return as old friends in different, uh, in different environments. Do you ever feel like you're hoping a little bit a particular person will buy a painting or are there some buyers that you like more than others? <laughs> well, look, you know, I have my certain relationships with buyers I've got to know very well and others I don't know so well. But, you know, sometimes if you've had long conversations with somebody, you're kind of rooting for them and you're hoping that they're going to get lucky. You know, if you know they've been looking for a particular kind of work for a long time and then finally here's their moment and you think, go on, go for it. But in the end, you know, as an auctioneer, my job is to get the highest possible price. It's been reported that the... Um Medigliani that was sold uh, last night ended up going to what's called a guarantor or someone who Mm -hmm. says before the auction, I'm going to pay X Mm -hmm. amount. Mm -hmm. Um, How does having that, it's sort of like an insurance policy, right? Having that third party there. Mm -hmm. How does that change the dynamic for you when you're doing your job? Well, first of all, we don't comment on the identity of the buyer and whether or where it landed. But, um, I mean, having an irrevocable bid, I mean, if one's just talking about it more broadly, is a mechanism that gives um, a benchmark level to the market. It says there's somebody out there already before you go into the auction who's ready to pay that amount. And that actually, in many scenarios, creates a lot of confidence. It creates actually a sense in the marketplace that that picture is already worth that because there is already a third party who will bid at that level. Mm-hmm. And when do you know that you've done your job well as an auctioneer? Are you ever certain of it? 
Is there a time where you just bring the gavel down? You know, I did this exactly right. Oh, I right. see. Well, no, but look, there's there's the whole auction, and then there's the individual lots. And some lots are great successes. I mean, look at the Mary Mary Cassatt. I mean, made nearly, I think it made over $4 million against an estimate of 700 to a $1 million. I mean, that was an extraordinary result, and the owner must be delighted, although I don't know them personally, but I mean, it was a great result. So you can have, within an auction, you can have lots that fly away, the Tamayo was a great success, and then you can have other ones where you think, oh, well, that was a bit, a bit disappointing, or that was a shame, and I thought that could have made more. So there's the individual scenarios about each lot, and then there's the whole auction in terms of you know how did how did it feel you know what was the what was the take what was the take home in terms of where does that leave people in their view of the market and the mood and in the end it's the top line number it's the whole auction that you I think in the end, most. people look at the top line number for the total sales. They look at any records of which we, you know, any any new prices, any benchmark prices that have been achieved against previous. You know, for instance, if you take the beautiful 1932 Picasso that we sold for 36.9 million dollars, I think um, that painting had been offered, I think, about in 2000, so 18 years ago, and at the time. It made um, around, I think, $7.9 million. Um, we can come back and check that. But, you know, so the people will look at those as indicators of how a market has developed. What is your goal in the end as an auctioneer? Is it just to sell the most valuable painting that's ever been sold? What's what's the what's the North Star for, for someone in your line of work? Oh, no. Well, look, I've already sold a work for $157.2 million, so that may not happen again very soon. But my goal is really to deliver the best results for our consigners and to bring um, well-curated and interesting auctions to, to the marketplace, which excite our global buyers Um you know, which which bring in more buyers, which um, actually are interesting in terms of their quality, in terms of the, the the material, the rarity of the works, the freshness of the works of the market. I mean, that's something about my job that I really love is actually the curating of the auctions and the and bringing it together. Because after all, you know, these are not exhibitions like you might mount in a in a public museum. They are um, uh, curated sales of works that are to be brought to market. And yet, when it all comes together, you get this sense of an exhibition, and that's tremendously exciting. Is there one painting out there that you dream of selling? Oh, yes, but I'm not going to tell that to you. <laughs> I have my wish list. It's been wonderful talking. Thank you. You've been listening to Working. I'm Jordan Weissman, and I want to say I appreciate you joining us this week. If you enjoyed the episode, please, please, please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts. And if you have any thoughts, uh, impressions, uh, criticisms you want to share, requests, please email us at working at slate.com. Again, working at slate.com. Uh, my producer on this show is the, and basically the maestro behind the whole thing is Jessamyn Molly. I would like to give a big thank you to Justin D. Wright for our ad music. 
And I hope you'll join us next week. This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.